This is the Epilog Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to History Chatter. This is the second episode of How to Understand a possible history of the Qutub Minar complex in such a way that the impression of the visitors to the complex and the research of serious and professional historians converge. We were talking about really the work of Professor Sunil Kumar, one of the most uh, distinguished historians of medieval India, indeed of the Sultanate period, who has written extensively about the Sultanate era monuments. Through a history of these monuments, he had tried to put together or combine the histories of the people and the villages which surround monuments Sultanate era monuments such as the Qutub Minar or the Qutub complex. And um, these histories of the monuments as isolated uh, exhibits or valuable heritage with the history of the people and the places, which too often date back um, to perhaps times earlier and older than these monuments. In understanding Sunil Kumar's method, we were talking in detail in the last episode about uh, how he dealt with his sources. I was telling you, for instance, that he made an original methodological point to the extent that he decided to read critically the mainstream sources such as the royal court chronicles written during the time of the Sultanate in the Persian language. Until recently, historians used to treat them as a source of um, correct and accurate information. Of course, Sunil Kumar did not dispute their primary status as a source of accurate information about political aspects of the Sultanate. However, he decided to treat these sources as um, inspired or as produced, indeed conceived and produced by an urge on the part of the rulers to impress their point of view to the future reader or whoever was to read it in future. So court chronicles, even when they offered correct or accurate detail, would always be characterized with an express intent on the part of the ruler to communicate things as the ruler at the time saw fit. Now, that did not necessarily reduce 
the value of such chronicles. What they did, however, is to inspire Kumar to look for information and insights in other kinds of non-mainstream sources. One of such non-mainstream sources were hagiographies um, or the books or manuscripts which were written in praise of Sufi saints, for instance, in addition to archaeological and numismatic details and material. Now, these material formerly were treated as a somewhat inferior quality source for historians. Sunil Kumar decided to read them more carefully, treat them more seriously as possible, as one of the possible correctives over this bias in Persian court chronicles in favor of communicating the point of view of the contemporary ruler. Kumar now offered an original point about the nature of the polity under the Delhi Sultanate. Earlier, historians wrote about the Sultan or the Sultanate of Delhi as the highest or the singular political seat of Islam in the subcontinent, as though other Muslim rulers elsewhere in the subcontinent were somehow inferior in status. Now, the root of the superior status of the Delhi Sultan, as though it was a self-evident or a settled question, Kumar believed that the status of the Delhi Sultan as the most powerful or the undisputed political authority, a deputy really, of the caliph um, was an open question. He had to regularly carry out measures. The Sultan of the time had to regularly carry out measures, affirmative measures, which emphasized or reinforced his claims to a superior status. According to Kumar's understanding, Kutubuddin Aibeg resolved to build the Kutub complex as a means to assert his higher status among the Muslim ruling elite in the Sultanate or within the subcontinent. He was keen to appear as the supreme protector of the Muslim community in the subcontinent. Now, not necessarily as a threat to Hindus, as uh, is commonly understood, but as a greater military and religious leader among his own peers or other potential sultans elsewhere in the subcontinent. Kumar showed that Bahauddin Tughril, a competitor of Qutubuddin Aibeg, had commissioned Friday mosques with similar design in Bayana, which he ruled around the same time. The inscriptions there too quoted Quranic verses, which hailed Bahauddin Tughril as the supreme defender of Islam in India. 
In other words, the sultans of Delhi and Bayana, who were both Muslims, commissioned Friday mosques around the same time and had Quranic verses glorifying them as the greatest torchbearer of Islam in the subcontinent. I repeat, around the same time. If an audience does not already assume that the Sultan of Delhi was the undisputed leader of all Muslims in India, or that the ruling class during the Sultanate period meekly stood at the feet of the Delhi Sultan as the greatest and the most respectable among them, there is no difference really between the claims made by Ibeg at the Qutub and those made by Bahauddin Tugril at the Bayana Friday Mosque. That's some food for thought. So Kumar believed that such lofty claims by competing political figures in their commissioned mosques probably mean that they were all of them trying to enlist the loyalty of their Muslim subjects or Muslim followers who would usually visit these mosques for prayers. We must remember that Hindus were not likely to visit mosques and certainly not likely to read the Persian uh, calligraphy on the walls of these mosques. Kumar thus suggested that the target audience of the Quranic verses in Friday mosques were not Hindus but Muslims. The purpose behind the engraving pious verses, the grafting of pious or religious verses on the walls of the mosques was simply a means to project the claims of the patron of a given mosque as more faithful or more uh, religious as a follower or a holder of Islam than other patrons of other mosques elsewhere in the subcontinent. A congregational mosque where large number of people participate in collective prayers or a masjid-e-jami such as the one in Delhi or Bayana differs from the usual mosques. They're usually larger in size and built as a public monument to accommodate large gatherings of the faithful. Under normal circumstances, Hindus or quote-unquote infidels would not even be allowed entry into a congregational mosque. In ideal circumstances, uh, the entry of non-Muslim, the non-Muslim really, is not recommended inside uh, the mosques, especially inside Friday prayer mosques. Intriguingly enough, um, there are some Devnagari inscriptions in the compound as well, in, in the Kutub compound really, which were left uh, surreptitiously by the Hindu artisans. 
They not only leave no trace of complaint or grievance that they were upset by the erection or commissioning of the mosques, but some of these Devanagari inscriptions actually celebrate the monument as the Sultan's pillar of victory. The monument is a palimpsest too. Um, in early 14th century, two Hindu architects who carried out some repair work in the minaret left an inscription to the effect that their work was suitably blessed of all people by God Vishwakarma. God Vishwakarma happens to be the god of artisans among the Hindus. From there, from uh, the chance discovery of these Devanagari inscriptions on the body of the Minar, Kumar proceeds to dispute the assumption of a cohesive ruling class in another manner. Earlier, it was assumed that the ruling class was made up entirely of Muslims and Hindus were only hunted or persecuted. Kumar found that contemporary chronicles refer even to the presence of Hindu military commanders and their followers in the rampaging armies of Qutbuddin Aibeg. Clearly, they had already worked out a professional relationship, the Hindus and the Muslims, uh, the soldiers really, for them to be part of the same army. The coinage of the sultans offers more eloquent evidence of attempts of uh, the sultans to reach out to the non-Muslim rulers or military commanders inside the subcontinent, people who had already been entrenched in positions of eminence or influence before the sultans entered India. The sultans made active efforts really to maintain continuity with existing systems of weights and measures. Questions of religion of the new rulers did not enter into these coins. A coin, uh, for instance, featured Nandi the bull and mentioned Chauhana horsemen, horsemen from the Chauhana lineage, even if it changed the title of the Sultan as uh, Sri Hamira. Gold coins carried the image of Hindu goddess of wealth, Lakshmi, and the Sultan's title in the Devanagari script. The coins made a statement that the new regime had been looking to integrate the subject population, that it did not propose to make basic changes in the existing system of weights and measures, or that it was not planning to enforce any fundamental change to existing order of things. It was not looking to break down the existing order in a manner that would make it difficult or um, impossible for the earlier subjects to understand that a new kind of rule had entered the subcontinent. Indeed, um, the early Sultanate coins were valued as much as the early Rajput coins. The economic world had quietly assimilated the new political regime 
without worrying too much about its religious profile. A few points must be made clear at this stage. It must be admitted that the sultans did destroy many temples. Raising temples was a common enough strategy for medieval rulers to emphasize their authority over rival rulers. Hindu rulers would do it often enough, meaning they too destroyed temples commissioned by other rulers. Yet, the language of political authority at the time meant that by destroying a temple, a victorious Hindu ruler would appropriate the authority of the vanquished ruler. Often, um, he would commission a restoration of the authority of the existing god in another form. A temple destroyed by a ruler from a different religion amounted to a far greater violation, for it did not involve a reconstitution of the authority of the existing god in another form. It is hard to assume that Hindus at the time did not feel offended with their temples being raised. Kumar was not discounting any of these possibilities. He proposed instead to highlight a more specific point about sources and methods. He made the point that if historians choose to believe the story told in Persian chronicles as true and fair, it would appear as though all these sultans did was demolish temples and hate Hindus. On the other hand, evidence from archaeology, numismatics, and even some Persian texts shows that they had been busy, busy making alliances with Hindu military leaders and traders and merchants. Perhaps the Hindu allies did not enjoy an equal status with Muslim members of the ruling class. Yet, the evidence from coins shows that the new regime had been looking to create a business-friendly climate for a change. Even if the political regime change was traumatic, some of the horror was certainly mitigated by such quick adjustments in the economic and commercial spaces. Let us return once again to the mosque at the Qutub complex. As we saw, the target audience there was entirely Muslim. A large number of Muslims arrived in India in the early 13th century from Afghanistan and Iran, apart from Transoxiana and Central Asia. Mongol raids in Central Asia had forced many of them to seek refuge in India. They were all Muslims by religion, but belonged to different ethnic background, practiced unique cultures, and spoke separate languages. It is hard, of course, to say whether they immediately felt total solidarity with all Muslims in India. Persian chronicles did appear at the same time to portray Delhi as a sanctuary for Islam. Yet, as Kumar shows, there is evidence in a Persian chronicle 
that an unorthodox preacher called Noor Turk had gathered an impressive following. And in 1236, some of his followers attacked the Friday mosque in Delhi, meaning the one at the Kutub complex. Initially, Noor Turk and his followers were dismissed as heretics. Yet, later, in 1318, the great Sufi saint Nizamuddin Aulia observed that Noor Turk's criticism of the ulama was fair. Since the ulama had, at the moment, sunk into luxury and degeneration, the ulama had practically framed the holy men. For Nizamuddin Aulia then, the Sufi saint par excellence, it was the Sharia-minded orthodox ulama who were more corrupt. Technically, Aulia was also absolving a Noor Turk or his followers from charges of assaulting the Friday mosque. If he was not absolving um, them from the charge of assault, he was certainly uh, placing them against a context in such a way that their crime, quote unquote crime, appeared less of an offense. There was an indirect observation here against the degree of sanctity associated with grand mosques built by the ulama too. If the ulama themselves misrepresented Islam, the mosques they built or celebrated clearly did not have unlimited or inviolable sanctity. Now, here, a brief note on the distinction between the approach of the ulama and the Sufi mystics, their respective approaches to Islam, is useful. The ulama followed an intellectual approach and offered prescriptive norms for the believers. The mystics, on the other hand, paid greater emphasis to love and imagination. The latter had no trouble speaking in terms of fairies and miracles, the Sufi mystics. It is useful to remember that both these competing approaches had their followers, and the literature produced by their respective followers too bore this distinction. The ulama hated the, the ability of the Sufis to mobilize large congregation of followers. They uh, held it as a threat to the unity of Islams. The Delhi sultans um, could do nothing really to control the Sufis, but they could express their support for the ulama by commissioning mosques, among other things. Iltutmish and Alauddin Khalji, both these sultans took their roles as uh, the preserver of the Shariat quite seriously. Several inscriptions in the mosques uh, make that clear. 
the mosque at the Qutub complex, I mean. The Dili sultans uh, needed the ulama to enforce popular obedience to the Sharia. At the same time, they were also looking to unify all Muslims of India at the time under a common code of beliefs and practices. A large congregational mosque would to that extent help in the cause of the ulama to unify the community. Nizamuddin was unimpressed. For him, the sanctity of that mosque did not emerge from its association with royalty, but from the fact that many Sufi saints had visited it. The tranquility of the place was a gift from the saints of God and not the Delhi sultans or their friends. At the time of its construction, then, the Friday mosque at the Qutub complex would carry different impressions to different stakeholders. Some Muslims probably looked at it as a symbol of the triumph of Islam, Kuwat ul Islam, secured by the military prowess of the Delhi sultans. For others, such as Nizamuddin Awliya, it might be a seat of the aggressive ulama who are now busy making rules and imposing strict disciplines on the Muslims of India. For three centuries after Alauddin's death in the early 14th century, the mosque was sometimes associated with the sultans. But it was the shrine of Nizamuddin Aulia which emerged as the most venerable, respectable Muslim holy site in Delhi, eventually. The Friday mosque at the Qutub gradually lost its prime status in the eyes of the believers. Mughal Emperor Humayun was buried at a plot nearby, a neighboring plot to the Qutub complex. And the Mughal rulers would pay regular visits to Nizamuddin's shrine. The Friday mosque uh, at the Qutub gradually lost its prime status in the eyes of the believers. Mughal Emperor Humayun was buried at a neighboring plot and the Mughal rulers would pay regular visits to Nizamuddin's shrine. The Mughal patronage to the Sufis now lifted them, elevated them really, as the most respectable Muslim holy men in Delhi. In South Delhi, in the neighborhood of the Qutub, the shrine of Qutubuddin Bakhtiar Kaki, who had been the preceptor of Nizamuddin's preceptor, gained in popularity since the 14th and 15th century. Royal visits lent it a special aura and it emerged as a major center for pilgrimage. Several Mughal rulers during the 18th and the 19th centuries were buried near the shrine. The last Mughal emperor, Bahadur Shah Zafar, too, had selected it as his final resting place, though his wish, of course, remained unfulfilled. Bakhtiar Kaki, Kutubuddin Bakhtiar Kaki, was so famous 
that the minaret of the mosque at the Qutub complex was called Qutub Sahib Kilat or the staff or the stick of the Qutub Sahib. In this rewalked cosmology, it was Peer Bakhtiar Kaki, after whom the minaret was now named Qutub Minar. The name was an acknowledgement of his charisma. Later, by the mid-19th century, Sayyid Ahmad Khan began to write and edit what he believed were the authentic sources of medieval Indian history. In addition to his work on Delhi's monuments, he also compiled and edited critical editions of Abul Fazal, Barani and several other Persian court chronicles. He was moved by the positivist uh, understanding that only a sober presentation of facts made for correct history. In his account of Delhi's oldest congregational mosque, he did mention, however, that one of the names for the minaret was Qutub Sahib Kilat, and that Kuvatul Islam was also one of the names for the mosque. No other detail was mentioned about these names. This book was later accepted by scholars as authentic. Since it appeared to contain the tools of what passed for sound historical research. Moreover, the critical editions of Persian texts prepared by Sayyid Ahmad later became staples for serious historians. Now, once these royal chronicles were accepted as authoritative sources for the history of medieval India, the history of the state or political history came to be the dominant aspect of medieval Indian history. Histories of medieval India came to be generally um, congruent with fortunes of the state. Later, by the mid-19th century, Sayyid Ahmad Khan began to write and edit what he believed were the authentic sources of medieval Indian history. In addition to his work on Delhi's monuments, he also compiled and edited critical editions of Abul Fazal, Jiauddin Barani and several other Persian court chronicles. He was moved by the positivist approach that only a sober presentation of facts made for correct history. He was making available, he thought, to the future historians the documentary evidence from the Persian court chronicles. In his account of Delhi's oldest congregational mosque, he did mention that one of the names for the minaret was Qutub Sahib Kilat, and that Quwwat ul Islam too was one of the many names for the mosque. No other detail was mentioned about these names. Since these names belonged to the realm of popular culture, this book, the book by Sayyid Ahmad Khan, 
was later accepted by scholars as particularly authentic since it appeared to contain the tools of what passed for sound historical research. Moreover, his critical editions of Persian texts later became staples for serious historians. Once these royal uh, chronicles were accepted as the only authoritative sources for history of medieval India, the history of the state or political history came to be the dominant form or aspect of medieval Indian history. Historians of medieval India came to be generally uh, of the opinion that uh, histories of medieval India were congruent more or less uh, the same as the fortunes of the state. Such conventional wisdom created peculiar problems in case particularly of the Friday mosque at the Kutub. Historians hastened to clarify that the minaret was not named after Bakhtiar Kaki but after Aibeg and that the term Kuvat ul Islam was said to refer to the might of Iltutmish. The possibility that the term Kuvat ul Islam was once used to refer to the charisma of a Sufi saint was quietly pushed away. That name was now made to stand for the military might of the first Sultanate ruler. Sunil Kumar in this context made a basic methodological point. He was asking for a new kind of sources, meaning he was interested to carefully study documents beyond the conventional Persian court chronicles. He thought they um, could be potentially as valuable as court chronicles. Until then, political history would always be considered more important. And questions like how Qutub Minar was named would always be resolved in favor of political answers. Historians may not anymore use the term Muslim period with regard to medieval India, but their work still treats the Sultanate and the Mughal rulers as the principal actors in the history of medieval India. It has to be understood that such emphasis is always likely to assign primary value to sources that provide information on political histories. It has also to be understood that by endorsing court chronicles as the most definitive source material, professional historians too contribute to professional misconceptions and popular misconceptions at the same time. If, for instance, Historians took the claim that the sanctity of the mosque 
emerged primarily from its association with Sufi saint Bakhtiar Kaki and not Qutbuddin Aybak or the ulama, as many appeared to believe in the 18th or the 19th centuries, more seriously, and it was later endorsed by official authorities. The common visitor or tourist would be exposed to both these possible versions. The images of a default association of medieval Muslims with Persian culture or of Muslims or the ruling elite as an internally united bunch of people with common aspirations are often misleading. Sometimes there are discussions on the unorthodox role of Vakti or Sufi saints, but they are spoken of as a minor or marginal force. Here, Kumar offered an insightful analysis on the way in which historians and officials interpret various facts about history with reference to a monument. He showed how such analysis appears to rule out one set of possible and legitimate facts and hold up others. Such preferences in turn predisposes future visitors to look at the monuments as symbols of violence and conflict. A more appropriate history of uh, the Friday mosque at the Qutub complex ought to include the stories of Bahauddin Tugril and his mosque at Bayana. It should also uh, take into account the story of the Sufi saints Bakhtiar Kaki and of Nizamuddin Aulia. Their relation to the mosque is arguably as integral to the character of the mosque as that of Qutbuddin Aibag or his ulama. Now, Kumar worked out this uh, general method of analysis uh, with regard to the other um, essays of um, that book on uh, the presence in the present in Delhi's past. And uh, he worked it out with relation to a number of other monuments in South Delhi. He would take up a contemporary concern such as secularism and relate it to the ways in which public knowledge and understanding of medieval monuments are often hard to fit within the conceptual horizon of such ideas. Something luminous was happening here. Kumar was making um, an academic and a popular point at the same time. At the academic level, he had been offering a historiographical point. He was calling attention to a new type of source material to be taken more seriously. He was also suggesting a fresh approach to understanding history of medieval India. In terms of argument, he was suggesting that the sanctity attached by the popular perception to several Sultanate-era monuments could be a result less of the Sultans commissioning or repairing them 
and more of famous Sufi saints blessing and spending time in their vicinity. Kumar saw the Sultans and the Sufis as representing two contesting streams of Islam. While the Sultans were always respectful to the Sufis, they would commission special monuments or congregational mosques as a means to, to regulate the practice of Islam among the common people in harmony with the prescriptions recommended by the ulama who swore by the shariat or the holy scripture of Islam. Sometimes these same sultans would also carry out with much fanfare demolition of the places of worship of alien religions. Their court chronicles would project such adventure as a holy duty in defense of Islam. Kumar was calling for a shift of attention to another scene in which the humble Muslim population of Delhi was deeply attached to the world of faith and miracles and fairies presided over by talismanic Sufi saints such as Bakhtiyar Kaki or Nizamuddin Aulia or his disciple Nasiruddin Chirag. It is possible that the Sultans maintained a balance between these two contesting approaches to Islam. However, there is no doubt that the Ulama and the Sufi saints stood for two distinct forms of religious practice. While the Ulama would recommend observance of prayer or other holy duties at regular interval as a means to forge a uniform community of believers, the Sufis were inclined to tolerate a greater range of ritual observances. Besides, they did not accept the authority even of the Sultans, nor did they aspire, generally speaking, to royal patronage. Both forms of Islam became popular, and Kumar wanted the historians and the general readers to acknowledge the popular appeal of the Sufi traditions too. At the popular level, he would take up stories of ubiquitous monuments, such as the Qutub or Hozkirani, and approach contemporary questions of uh, secularism or Hindu-Muslim relations. Typically, he would write in lucid prose stories that showed popular religion to be highly flexible and tolerant of differences than those enjoying royal patronage. In so doing, he would stitch up multiple and layered histories of familiar or common monuments, which until then were known by official histories, which typically did not much highlight such unorthodox dimensions. Now, this is um, how histories happen in reality. There are so many ways people associate values to monuments they treasure. There is some truth to all of these ways, and none of these ways has to overshadow the other. 
for the contemporary or future visitors to such monuments. Such multiple histories can only be enriching. As a matter of fact, Kumar's story of how the holiness associated with the Hawes Kirani area changed over centuries reads like a lesson in public history. It recalls the ways in which the insensitive visions of urban development agencies can provoke defensive retreats into an invented sanctity associated with monuments, the older histories of which is often forgotten by residents who live within its vicinity. But Kumar's work must be read by the average, ordinary, non-specialist reader, also because he is a professional historian who began essays with sentences such as, all of us, whether we realize or not, function as our own historians. In his book, Presence in Delhi's Past, he looks at how sanctity or holiness comes to be associated with a place or a monument over time. He shows that there may be distinct sources of sanctity to a monument at the same time. And the nature of sanctity associated with a place changes over time. Residents around the area often forget older histories of holiness and build new kinds of holiness in response to their present or contemporary needs and challenges. As Sunil writes in an essay on the changing histories of the village of Sayyidullah Jab, and I quote, the meaning and significance of what is holy, sacred or religious were not fixed forever in time, but were subject to constant reinterpretation." Unquote. In other words, individuals and communities in the present actively participate in making and remaking their past. Sunil Kumar's work was distinguished by a keen interest in the role of the residents near the monuments, in the villages where they lived and new groups moved in, with changing material and cultural interests. Especially appealing are his detailed accounts of how older structures were alternately preserved or demolished by state agencies or by local residents based on their understanding of their immediate interests. Sometimes even those who swore by the antiquity of a landscape or a monument presented imaginary histories, either deliberately ignoring or oblivious of credible histories. This indeed um, is how we all approach the past. Our understanding of the past changes or evolves in response to our present interests. While it is a problem, it is also inescapable. The challenge is, finally, 
to understand and accept the monuments and landscapes have multiple histories. Some of those may suit our interests while others may go against our interests. It is for all of us to learn to live with these complications. I'll be back soon with more unfamiliar stories of familiar events or people or places. Till then, this is Onirban bidding you goodbye. Do please tell us what you like or dislike about this or other episodes. And yes, please subscribe to History Chatter on the Epilogue Media website, Geo7, Spotify, Ghana, Hub Hopper, and Apple Podcasts. <laughs>